You know we're in the midst of a freedom series for the month of July, and I'm using as a guide for the sermons four paintings that were done by Norman Rockwell. And these paintings were done during the time of World War II. And they were done to raise money for the war effort. And they were based on a speech by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president of the United States at the time. And he listed four things, four freedoms, that we should focus on as, and give thanks for. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Years later, in fact, in 2016, a group of artists gathered together and formed a activist artist organization that they named for FOR Freedoms. And they commissioned artists from all over the United States to use Rockwell's paintings for inspiration to do them again, reflecting the diversity of our country. You know, Rockwell grew up in a time when a lot of people thought about our country as being white. And a lot of white Americans really didn't take into consideration people of different cultures and backgrounds. And so these new artist activists commissioned these paintings. And there were 82 of these paintings developed. And they mirrored exactly freedom of speech in Rockwell's interpretation and freedom of speech in a new artist's interpretation, and so on and so forth. Well, that's what we're using today. And today, we're going to speak about freedom of religion. So. You know, as you might imagine, uh, freedom of religion also sort of implies that we have freedom of worship. And I want to remind you that during scriptural times of the Hebrew scriptures and also of the New Testament scriptures, that freedom of religion and freedom of worship was pretty non-existent in almost the whole world that wherever you happened to be born and lived was the religion you adhered to, and that that was usually dictated by the state. Now, I, I hate to break it to you, but that became true uh, on into, it existed for centuries, and became true on into the time of the Reformation, when uh, if, if you were a special kind of Christian, like, for example, an Anabaptist, you could be executed because you were worshiping in a different way than the majority of people in various countries. And, in fact, uh, those same kind of attitudes existed when the United States was founded. In fact, our predecessors, the Pilgrims and the Puritans, traveled to the United States in order to uh, have freedom to worship and practice their faith in the way they believed they should. Still, just like in biblical times and just like in the Reformation and other times, freedom of religion was still dictated. I mean, freedom, and, and, and often the very people who had sought freedom denied it to others. In fact, Christian people who settled in the United States 
in the Massachusetts Bay Colony would not let uh, Roger Wilson and his people worship because they believed in freedom of religion. There's more to tell in that story, but I want to go back to the Hebrew scriptures and remind you of one very famous story about someone who had to face the fact that he couldn't worship as he believed. It took place in the time of the Babylonian captivity. You see, the Jewish people and the country of Israel had been overrun by the kingdom of Babylon. And in uh, defeating the Jewish people, uh, the king brought all the strong, healthy men and women Jews to Babylon. They lost their country and they lost their place of worship. And they became not slaves per se, but they didn't have the kinds of freedoms that they might have enjoyed in their homeland. The king then was Nebuchadnezzar, and what he decided to do was to gather up his best uh, Babylonian wisdom people, young people, and then he wanted four of the Jewish exiles, their handsomest, most perfect, wisest young men to come and become part of his royal court. Among those were four... um, Four Jewish young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Listen, you may know them by other names. You, of course, know the name of Daniel, perhaps. Well, he got renamed Belthazar, and Hananiah was named Shadrach, and Mishael was called Meshach and Azariah was called Abednego. You see, they had such little freedom that they didn't even get to keep their Jewish names. Well, it turns out that King Nebuchadnezzar had a really bad dream. And he called the Babylonian young men in, and he said, tell me my dream and interpret it for me. And they said, well, nobody can do that. I mean, you... You actually have to tell us your dream, and then we'll interpret it for you. And it made him enraged. And so he called on the four Jewish wisdom young men. And Daniel asked his friends to pray for him. And he went in, and he actually told the king what he had dreamed. And then he interpreted it for him. And for that, Daniel and his friends were elevated to a higher position in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Well, you can imagine what happened. People became jealous of Daniel and his friends and began to plot against Daniel and his friends and also King Nebuchadnezzar, who finally was run out of Babylon. It turns out that then there was another king, and finally that king died and King Darius came to power. And King Darius actually really cared about these Jewish wisdom teachers that were a part of his court. Well, Daniel continued to serve King Darius and to receive his favor, and a plot against Daniel thickened. Daniel's enemies in the court convinced King Darius to sign an edict that everyone should pray to the king, and anyone who prayed to anyone other than the king, divine or human, except for praying for the king, if they prayed for anyone else, they would be thrown into the lion's den. 
Of course, they perfectly well knew that Daniel and his friends were praying to the God of Israel. Well, Daniel was not going to stop praying to his God. And so these people plotting against him went and told the king and said, he is, he is violating your edict and you must throw him into the lion's den. And, and the king was very distressed and spent an entire day trying to figure out how he could save Daniel. But at the end of the day, he realized he couldn't. And so he threw Daniel into the lion's den and grieved deeply throughout the night. But then, the next morning, the king ran to the lion's den and found Daniel alive and well. And when asked, Daniel explained that an angel of the Lord had come in the night and had closed the mouths of the lions. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples of the nations in every language throughout the whole world. And this is what he wrote. May you have abundant prosperity. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people should tremble and have awe before the God of Daniel. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and into the reign of Cyrus the Persian, who, by the way, was the king of Babylon that returned the Jews to their homeland in Israel. Now, the mystical story about God sending an angel to close the lion's mouth is one I'm not sure we can really explain. But I don't know that that's the real lesson. It's a great Bible story and probably one you still remember from when you were a kid. But I'm not sure, sure that's the lesson. I think perhaps the lesson of Daniel is that we should know that even though Daniel and his friends were members of the court, they did not have the privilege of the freedom to worship as they believed. And even when that freedom was restricted, they continued to worship their God, who, of course, is all our gods, the God for all of us. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is that Daniel, even at the risk of his life, would not reject his faith in God, but trusted God in life and in death. As citizens of the United States, we may forget that freedom of religion is a human right in our country today, but not in other countries around the world. We tend to take it for granted. Several years ago, I was invited to visit Dr. Steve Sprinkle's class at Bright Divinity School. It was a big class, about 30 students, and a woman was sitting at the back. She was um, very, very tall and a very stoic kind of presence at the back of the classroom. I couldn't help but notice her. Well, um, that was the year that 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians were kidnapped and beheaded in Libya. We know of this because the Islamic State published the execution in a five-minute video. Those people who had gone to Libya, Egyptian Coptic Christians, to work to raise money to care for their families were rounded up like animals, and were considered a threat to the Islamic State because they were Christians. And then after the class with Dr. Sprinkle, I met Jihan Barak, 
who turned out to be herself an Egyptian Coptic Christian. And then all of a sudden, I realized how desperately close we are to people who do not have the kinds of freedoms that we enjoy. As I told you earlier, the real challenge of the freedom religion in the United States um, continued to be a difficulty in the early days of our nation and the settlers that formed our nation. Roger Williams, in 1636, was banished from Massachusetts for his advocacy for the religious tolerance and the separation of church and state. Um, He is responsible for founding the state of Rhode Island that became a haven for Quakers and others who were seeking to truly have freedom to worship. It just wasn't the case that in the other forming states of our nation that you had the freedom to worship the way you chose. In 1660, one of the most notable victims of religious intolerance was English Quaker Mary Dyer, who was hanged in Boston, Massachusetts for repeatedly defying a Puritan law, Puritans being some of our predecessors in the United Church of Christ, banning Quakers from the colony. As one of the four executed Quakers known as the Boston Martyrs, the hanging of Dyer on the Boston gallows actually marked the beginning of the end of a Puritan theocracy in the early forming of our nation. And no doubt you know that those who were brought here against their own will as slaves were offered no rights, no rights in terms of their freedom of worship. Of course, there is good news in this story. Freedom of religion was codified in our amendments to the Constitution of the United States, which reads freedom of religion, and we might also extrapolate worship, or religious liberty is a principle that supports the freedom of an individual or community in public or private to manifest religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance, and also includes the freedom to change one's religion or beliefs and to be absent of any religious beliefs. That's a definition of religious freedom. Our founders decided to make that set in our Constitution and amendments. And as far as religion goes, this is what it states in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So with that comes some challenges itself. Notice how brief that is. No laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And that's been a conundrum for many of us and for many people in the United States as different religious groups and people of no faith and people who have faith and want to impose it on others think that they have the right to do so. So some of the challenges we face right now in the area of religious freedom is how we take it for granted. I mean, really, when was the last time you thought about the fact that we get to worship 
We get to choose, for the most part, where we worship and when we worship. We, we get to choose how we worship and who we worship with. I mean, when was the last time you actually thought about that? Well, it's probably been recently since churches have closed down and some restrictions have been made on the worship in, in person of people who are practicing their faith. It also means that there has been an understanding in our country that there should be a separation between the church and the state or the government. And what that means is that we have many things that many uh, uh, cases that come to the courts that kind of argue this idea that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. And people argue that. argue that a lot before the courts and take their arguments sometimes all the way to the Supreme Court. And some Christians believe that this nation was founded on Christian principles and by Christian people, and so they have a right to impose their faith on religious minorities, including Jews, Hindus, Muslims, and others, and people of no faith. That because they believe that this nation was founded by that kind of understanding, that they have the right to impose the Christian faith on others. Well, um, that's an important thing for us to consider. That phrase in the First Amendment prohibiting the free exercise thereof has led some churches to gather without masks and social distancing. And it has allowed some churches to gather wearing masks and keeping social distancing. And it's allowed some churches like ours to not gather in person but to gather online. The good news of the freedom of religion and our faith is that we get to choose. I hope that's not lost on you. You know, I mean, what you might say, well, what's a good Christian to do? Well, the writer of the letter of James tells us succinctly what good Christians can do. Religion is the pure and undefiled is pure and undefiled before God. And is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, what does that mean for us? Just as we have freedom of religion and can gather and worship as we choose, it also means that we have a right to choose how we will and if we will worship. It means our freedom is tied to our care for others, especially the most vulnerable among us. And it means we need to seek to be more like Jesus. And that means that we hold the value of our freedoms in one hand and the challenge to be like Jesus in the other. And that we seek to balance those two things. Jesus who cared for the marginalized and made it his ministry to restore people to community. It means that we take our personal freedom of religion and worship seriously, but not at the expense of others and at the expense of the common good. We dare not use this guarantee of freedom of religion at the expense of others. We dare not use this guaranteed freedom of religion to impose our beliefs on other people. It means that we commit to seeking God 
following in the way of Jesus, being open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our world. Listen, you have to hear this. James lays it out for us. We are to care for others, and we are to seek to not be defiled by the ways of the world. Richard Rohr, as you know, is one of my favorite writers, and he is writing this week about activists who were also contemplatives. He writes this, for most people, the process begins on the side of action. We learn, we experiment, we do, we stumble, we fall, we break, and we find. Gradually, our thoughts and actions become more mature. But it is only when we begin to question our own viewing platform, do you hear that? When we question our own viewing platform, that we begin to move into the realm of contemplation. The contemplative side of the soul will reveal itself when we begin to ask, how can I listen for God and learn God's voice? How can I use my words and actions to expand and not contract? How can I keep my heart, mind, and soul open even in hell? Contemplation is a way to bring heaven to earth, but it begins with a series of losses, largely our illusions. If we do not enter the learning process deeply, we will settle for being right instead of being whole and holy, for saying prayers instead of being prayer. What might our world look like if we practice our faith, our freedom of religion in this way? What might, our, what might our country look like, or our state, or our city? What about our families and friends, and even our enemies? I don't need to tell you that the slaves in our country, in the early development of our country, and even as we moved into the Civil War, were denied the faith of their homelands. Brought to the United States against their will and with little teaching, if any, they were baptized and some of them were baptized in masses. Whole big groups of slaves were baptized without being asked if they wanted that or not. Still, according to Melva Custon in her book African American Worship, Still, the liberating word of God freed the slaves to respond in new and creative ways in the midst of their human bondage. She says, it was in their worship that they bonded and found a way to survive their enslavement and for some to find a way to freedom. After the Civil War and into Reconstruction and into the development of the Jim Crow laws, it was the black church that raised up nonviolence resistance under the leadership of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and people, lay people, like Fannie Lou Hammer. And even now it is the black church that is leading the way, Reverend Otis Moss, Jr., in the United Church of Christ in Chicago, Reverend Frederick Haynes in, here in Dallas, Texas, Reverend Dr. William Barber II in North Carolina, Reverend Jackie Lewis in New York City, Reverend Tracy Blackman in the United Church of Christ and in St. Louis. These black leaders are again showing us how freedom of religion really works in our world, how our freedoms really work in our world. Did you think God is not at work in this? Are we foolish enough to think that God is not at work in our world? Think again, this freedom we have of religion and worshiping is being seen in ways 
that we cannot even imagine in our Euro-American white churches who are, for the most part, declining precipitously. Do you know that the black church in America is about the only Christian tradition that is actually growing and thriving? Oh, this freedom of religion and this God whom we love is doing a new thing, rest assured. These slaves that worshipped so long ago and found their way to freedom were not unlike Daniel, who would not give up until they found it. And we can be the people that James reminds us we should be, that no longer do we sit in pews But really, the church is out there where people are needy, they're hungry, they're sick, and they need us to find ways to help and heal. And we, my friends, in all our freedoms, had best seek more than anything else to be more like Jesus. Amen.